We're going to be tonight in Psalm 42. And actually, it's, we're going to be 42 and 43. Now, you'll recall, possibly, that most of the, the psalms that we went through in that first book, most of them have reference in the superscript to King David. There's a lot of them that we came to, and we knew exactly who it was that wrote that psalm. Well, we don't know ex exactly who it was that wrote this psalm, and so that's, that's led to some speculation. Now, you'll, you'll see a superscript there. It says, to the choir master, a mascal, of the sons of Korah. As we move through this psalm together, and, I, and I, as I said earlier, this is really one, one large poem, Psalm 42 and Psalm 43. It's three stanzas. You'll see there in verse 5, Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? You see down in verse 11, Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? You see in verse 5 of Psalm 43, why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? So there's really three stanzas in this poem, one long poem, but at some point it was divided, it was divided into two. I don't know if that was for the sake of singing it in, in services. Was it just the way that it was written? We don't know. And because there's doesn't tell us that it's, it's King David that wrote this, it does reference the sons of Korah. This, this has left a lot of speculation as to what was the setting for the writing of this poem. What was the setting for the writing of this psalm? Some people have said that it was King David, that these were the sons of Korah. We'll describe who they are in a minute. But that these were the sons of Korah that had gone with King David when he was either fleeing from uh, King Saul or perhaps from his son Absalom. There's others that have wondered if this wasn't some type of uh, wandering prophet some prophet that had been exiled from the land and was lamenting his, his exile from Jerusalem. Others have wondered if it wasn't King Hezekiah. I read one commentary this week that they're just convinced it's Hezekiah. They're, they've drawn a line in the sand and said, absolutely, this is King Hezekiah when his health was failing him and Isaiah had come and, and spoken to him. I, I tend to think probably this is, a, um, the, this is some, of the, uh, some of the temple uh, singers that are brokenhearted because they have been cast out of Jerusalem for some reason or another and they're they're crying out and longing for God's holy uh, God's holy temple um, so it says there the sons of Korah does anybody anybody ever heard the name Korah before anybody remember any stories of Korah anybody ever heard of the rebellion of Korah the so Korah was a man that led a rebellion against Moses and Aaron and as a result of this God struck the men dead so he was unfaithful in his duties he tried to capture power or control or authority away from the one that God had anointed and placed in that position but his sons who came after him were those who served in leading out in song worship they are now writing a song for themselves and it's a song of lament it's a song of sorrow Oftentimes you'll hear it spoken of as a song of spiritual depression. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote a fabulous book back in the 50s, I think. Maybe it was the late 40s. Wrote a, wrote a book about spiritual depression. It's one that people that suffer with intense sp spiritual depression often will refer to. And he wrote that book out of his sermons on Psalm 42 and Psalm 43. You're, you're going to see something here in terms of God's, God's remedy 
God's response, God's help, the way that we need to be thinking in times of spiritual depression. And, and this really is a, a foreign thing to us today. They don't write very many praise and worship songs today about spiritual depression. Whenever we started talking about singing the Psalms on Sunday night, I made a post, kind of half-heartedly said that most of what passes for praise and worship this day is Jesus is my boyfriend music. That's a lot of what people write. You wouldn't know any different. You just remove the name Jesus and, pointed it and, and, and put a dude's name in there. It, it's just a pop song. It's, just a, it's, a, it's a pop song about Jesus being so madly in love with you because you're so swell you're so wonderful, you're so worthy, that of course, why wouldn't he be? Or the ones that don't go that route don't dare speak about times of depression or sorrow or dryness. And that's what's so beautiful about the Psalms. They scan the, they scan the whole of human emotion. Everything in their raw honesty. You see these, these people of God. You're gonna see here in this passage, we're not told of anything that this man or these men did wrong. Their hearts are dead, dead perfect in the beginning at least, thirsting for God. And yet in the middle of this, you find out they're spiritually depressed. They're brokenhearted. They're even wondering if God has abandoned them, has, has, cast them, has cast them away. So we're reminded that when we come into a place like this for worship, that true spiritual worship is transparent and real and raw and open and a lot of times messy. We talk about it a lot whenever we come to the Lord's table and I, and, I, and I reference because I see it in my head. Even though I don't see it physically, I see it in my head, the man or the woman that's literally crawling on their hands and knees up the aisle. It doesn't actually happen. You've never seen this. But I know what some people are dealing with and I know it's taking every ounce of energy to put one foot in front of the other just to get here. But they know Christ is gonna meet them. They know he's gonna strengthen them. And so there's something beautiful to me about these kind of psalms, these men worshiping and praising God. Again, these were recorded here. These weren't just the songs of those men in the wilderness separated from the place of worship in Jerusalem. This was a song that was repeated by the congregation in corporate worship. Are you tracking? Because not everybody that shows up in this place has got the joy, 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 joy down in their heart. So, it goes like this. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad, sh glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night, his song is within me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to my God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? 
Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. While they say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. So he begins, you know these, you know these opening lines, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. So there's a passage somewhat similar to this in the prophet Joel, in the first chapter of the prophet Joel, and it has this picture of this parched and dry land where even the animals can't get themselves a drink and the, and the grass is all withering away and the, the, the creeks are drying up. And in that passage, it's a picture of God's judgment upon sin. It was a call to the people to repent. And we're reminded there are times when we're going to thirst, when we're going to, be, we're going to be desperate for communion with God, and the thing that has separated us from him is our own sin. The thing that is necessary in that day is repentance on our part. But this doesn't, we're not told of anything like that here. In fact, when we get to Psalm 43, we see the man saying, search me out, God. Vindicate me, for I've not, I've not done wrong in this. If I have done wrong, Search me out and, and reveal it to me. In fact, I, I think that we see a picture of exactly where a man's heart should be in this, and it's a hunger for God, a thirst for God. Turn over to Isaiah 55, if you would. The first verse. You all know this text as well, I'm sure. This is the invitation from the Lord. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money on that which is not bread and labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligent to, diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant my steadfast, sure love for David. In this invitation, God is calling out to the people and he's saying, why would you go and waste your life on all these other things? All these things that are gonna waste away, all these things that are gonna leave you empty, we know in part why, because we think this time's gonna be different. That left me empty last time, so surely a whole lot more of it's gonna leave me full. Maybe if I just receive it in a different way. Maybe if I just go some different route. Maybe I catch a a few more breaks, then I'm going to be satisfied in this. He says, what are you doing? This is insanity. You come to me. You come to me, you who are thirsty. You come to me, you who are broke. Isn't that the beauty in it? You don't bring the money. You don't bring the offering and then earn the blessing. You just bring yourself to me. 
You come dragging yourself down the aisle, and I will give you food. I will give you milk. I will give you, I will give you water. I will give you milk. I will give you wine. Now there's, you, can, you can find some really good commentaries, some really good sermons on what does the water, what does the milk, what does the wine represent. But we know that, that the, the water is a refreshment, that you die without water. The picture of this man out there, this deer, this animal that's out there in the wilderness, and it's panting, either because it's been running from a hunter or it's just been so long without water. It's at the point of death, and so it's, it's, it's panting. It desperately needs some water. And God says, I am that water, just as Christ Jesus said to the woman at the well, I am the living waters. You come to me, and you'll, you'll never thirst. And you remember what she says? Well, well give me some of this, right? G- give me some of this. I'm tired of lugging this jar out here. I'm tired of having to come out here and collect the water just like all the other women. He says, you're not getting it. You're not understanding. When you come to me in this way, there's a stream then, a fountain within you that the water just keeps coming and coming and coming. It's not that you're never going to thirst because you have one sip of me and you want no more. It's because I'm constantly going to be there giving myself to you. That's why we don't just take the Lord's Supper once at the day of our baptism and never come back this constant need to come to him over and over and over again. And he's saying, I am the one that will refresh you. Once you've tasted, once you've seen that which is best, you're not going to settle for all these other things. So you'll notice that whatever the situation is here, and we haven't, haven't really unpacked that yet, whatever the situation is here, the guy isn't calling for God to bring the pain and the suffering to an end. He just wants God. He's panting for God. He's longing for God. He's thirsting for God. He knows that's the only thing that's going to satisfy him. We prayed earlier for a family, right? A family whose situation may not change in this lifetime. They may carry the burden of illness and exhaustion and concern for each other all the way to the very end. See, that's what's so damnable at times about people that keep coming up to, they come up to Christians in time of suffering, they say, hey, God's going to release you of this. It's going to get better. It might not get better, not in that way. Not in a physical way. So sometimes we do good to tell them, this might not get better, but I pray that God would meet you right here in the middle of this. That as you thirst for him and as you long for him, he will give himself over to you more and more and more, and you'll find real satisfaction. You'll find real refreshment, even in the middle of the wilderness, even in the middle of the exhaustion, even in the middle of the hurt and doubts and fear and all the rest that come. So this, it seems as though this guy's heart is right because he's not asking, God, change my circumstances, change my situations. He's not lying to himself. Things are going to get better tomorrow. He's saying, but God, what I long for, what I, what I pant for is you. And we see it very clearly at the end of verse 2 when he says, when shall I come and appear before God? It can alternately, alternately be read, when shall I come and see your face? It's not just my appearance before you. It's I want to see you, God. I just need to, I need to be in your presence. Now, does this mean that this man doesn't think that God can be with him there? But there's, no, there's, there's this special presence, as we'll see, about being with the congregation, about coming together in corporate worship and being before God. That's his desire, to see God, be refreshed by God. Verse 3, my tears have been my food day and night. We're reminded, I think, that oftentimes there is a direct correlation between your thirst for God your zeal for God, and the sorrow you will experience in this lifetime. Because you've tasted what is better. You look at the world around you and they can hardly even tell anything's busted. They certainly can't tell you why it's busted. 
But how many people do you look around at you and you, you, you want to yell at them, don't you know this is not normal? Or maybe it's normal, but don't you know it's not right? It's like they never knew the fall occurred. They just thought this is just the stream of life. This is just the way the world is supposed to be because they've not tasted anything different. They have no concept of heavenly things. They don't look forward to the end of the book when the lion and the lamb and the, the baby with his hand over the cobra's den and all that. They have no concept of that kind of peace, that kind of joy that comes in the presence of God. But we do, and so we will suffer sorrow oftentimes much greater than the world will because we know. While they say to me, these are adversaries or someone around him that's taunting him, while they say to me all day long, where is your God? These people, whoever they are, are they captors? Are they people that are pursuing them? Are they just, just foreigners, people around them? We, we don't know. But whoever these people are, they know that this guy or these guys, their hope is in God. Do people know that about you? We had that group that went up for, um, they went up for uh, evangelism training, missionary training up in, up in Utah with the group that we sponsor up there, Ben Neiser and all his, his buddies and, and Provo. And apparently a big portion of what they talked about as they came back and reported to me was that as you meet people, yes, you've got to earn the right sometimes to, to, to probe into where they are spiritually and ask them some difficult questions and to begin talking to them about their sin and some of these things. Right? It's not always appropriate. Sometimes it's flat out rude just to go busting into somebody's life and just start vomiting out everything you know about the gospel. Sometimes that would be appropriate, but oftentimes it's not. Oftentimes you actually have to invest in somebody's life and, and, and get to know them a little bit. But one of the things that they say in this training is that very, very, very early on in your relationship, you need to make clear to these people, I'm the guy that trusts in God. That they need to know you're the guy that prays to God. You're the guy that believes in God. You're the guy that knows God. These men apparently knew that. These taunters, these adversaries, they knew that about the man that wrote this psalm. He's a guy who trusts in God so that when things then went badly, that comes back to haunt him. You're the guy that trusts in God and look at you. You're the guy that trusts in God and you're no better than us. Maybe you're in worse position than us. This is what knowing God gets you and that's when the taunts come. But the world will use this as a but because they've seen so much of the prosperity gospel, they've heard so many preachers that get up and tell you, if you know God, everything goes well. All God wants to do is be your cosmic genie and give you all the things that your heart desires. Then when you don't get those things, then when your finances don't turn around, when your child isn't healed, when whatever it is that you had been praying for, earnestly praying for, doesn't come to pass, where's your God now? Even if they're not taunting you, even if they're not trying to wound you in this, they will inadvertently say things like this. Didn't you people pray for this? Doesn't God have the ability? So what is it? Is God not powerful enough to meet your need? Or does he just not love you enough to meet your need? Which one is it? Either way, I'm having a hard time believing in this God that didn't bother showing up for you. You go to church every Sunday? You go to prayer meeting on Wednesday night? You give money to him? Your service, your life, everything, and this is what he gives you? He doesn't show up? Where's your God now? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude giving festival. This, 
this man, these men, they can only remember this now. And we're reminded how often we don't appreciate things when we have them. It's only when they're lost. Right? We, we show up in this place and we take it for granted, right? We take it for granted we can just show up in this place whenever we want if we feel like it on a Sunday morning or on a Wednesday night or on a Sunday night. It's not until that's stripped away, not through fault of our own, because of health, because of work, because of something, that all of a sudden we start to realize, what, what did we have here? What did we have here? And I, sh- and I point out to you, what is, what is breaking this guy's heart here? Again, we've not even gotten to what his, right? Is, is there some physical limitations on him? Maybe. He, he certainly appears to be displaced from the place that he calls home. But what's his major concern? I want to see the face of God, and I want to be with the people of God. That's what breaks his heart. He wants to be in corporate worship. He's thinking back to those sweet moments. He's saying, in my sorrow right now, even while other men taunt me, where is your God? Why hasn't he shown up? Why hasn't he cared for you? Why hasn't he given you the thing that you prayed for? He's saying, what I want more than anything else is just to be with the people of God and worship. It breaks my heart so much when I speak with Christians, I speak with believers, and they have no use for this. I'm not talking about a Wednesday night prayer meeting. I'm talking about a Sunday morning gathering. No use to gather with the people. They say, I worship on my own, or I worship in some other setting. But there's something about this, about the body coming together as one, about the way in which God meets us in a special way there, about the grace that he presents to us through those, through those meetings. So this man is heartbroken at the, at the loss of that. But here's his response. We see this three times repeating through this psalm. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. So any of you that have heard Martin Lloyd-Jones' sermons or you've read his book, you know that one of the primary focuses is preach to yourself. You've got to preach to yourself what he says, and it, it never occurred to me until I've heard him say it, and I'm like, that is absolutely true. He says way too many people listen to themselves instead of preaching to themselves. You're listening to your heart. You're listening to your stupid thoughts. You're listening to what is out in front of you, what you're listening to your friends. Right? You're, you're, you're constantly listening to yourself instead of saying, listen here, self. You know this thing to be true. You know who God is. You know he's the one that's worthy of placing your hope in. Put your hope in God. Place your hope in God. Don't allow yourself to so settle into this spiritual depression, depression that you just get completely despondent, that you fall into to real despair, or that you, that you pull back from the people of God because it can't be exactly the way I want, or I can't have exactly the sense of joy I want, or because circumstances get, get hard, that you voluntarily pull yourself back. No, you press in deeper. You, you, you preach to yourself. Now, you've got to know the right things to preach to yourself. That's another modern abomination. The churches that get up and they say, look, you know, that the worst thing you can do is say bad things to yourself. And I believe this, right? I've, I've got a bad habit of, um, I call myself an idiot a lot. Uh, idiot, what are you doing? You're an idiot. Why did you do this? And, but, but they take this, look, you, you need to speak the truth about yourself. You need to say what God says about you. And I'm like, amen. God says you're a child of wrath and a son of the devil. You got to say the truth. The truth isn't that you're awesome 
The truth is, God is our hope. The truth is, in Christ Jesus, you are holy and completely loved by God. That God is holy and completely for you. So instead, what we turn these type of sermons into is, you've got to give yourself your own little spiritual pep rally. I'm not talking about that. You don't pep yourself up. You speak the truth about what God's word says. What God's word says is, I was never enough. But because of Christ Jesus, I hope in God. I hope in God. Why are you cast down on my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Does this mean that this guy had no reason to be sad? Yes, he had reason to be sad. He was separated. He wanted to be with the people. He wanted to be in Jerusalem. He wanted to be in the temple. We don't look at people and go, hey, buck up. It's not that hard. No, maybe it's really that hard. Maybe it's really, really, really hard. So we come alongside him and we cry. We acknowledge it. We look at it and go, yes, that's awful. That's awful. I hate that that thing just happened. Then we encourage him, can I show you some hope in God? When it's right, when the time is right, there's a season for just sitting there and crying. Sometimes you just need to be there, man. You need to be there and be available. You need to be there and be ready. You need to be there and be sensitive to what's going on. And then when the time's right, you look at him and you say, there is hope in God. I'm calling you to hope in God. And we preach that to ourselves and we preach it to others. Oftentimes, right, we can't hear it in the middle of that, so we've got to be preaching it to ourselves now. What do I say, right, while the waters are calm, while things are okay, on a Wednesday night when... For the most part, y'all's lives must be fairly stable because you made it here tonight, right? You each have your own little pockets of craziness going on, but you're able to drag yourself here for some reason. So while things are reasonably calm today, you're preaching this to yourself. My hope is in God. My hope is in God, even when everything around me looks like, looks like a whirlwind, even when I can't get my eyes fixed, even on what the problem is. Get your eyes on him as quick as possible. And know what I preach to you over and over. I just got to get my eyes fixed on him. He's my salvation. He's my God. One of, one of my great regrets in life is that I waited so late to get serious about the word of God. I'm only 43, but who knows? I may not see 44. You don't, you don't know, right? But I know I have less time at 43 than I did at 23. And I've hidden less of the word in my heart than I had hoped. And I watch some of these senior adults that have hidden the word in their heart their whole life. And it starts coming out, right? You think about some of these people that later in life their mind kind of slips. And they start almost unconsciously speaking. And you're going, man, I want to be the guy that just recites the word of God to myself and to others without even thinking about it. Instead of worthless movie lines or baseball stats or even when I can't get my hands on a Bible, even when my eyes are too weak to read the Word, I've got so much of it here. That's just all there is. That's what comes bubbling up in those times. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, so he's saying what he's about to say happens because his soul is cast down. Because my soul is cast down. Therefore, I will remember you. I will think about God. I will meditate on God. 
I'm going to remember God. And I think this is more than just, oh, yeah, there is a God. You're, you're not going to remember a God you never knew, certainly. And it's, it, is, it is a delight. It is a treat. It is a treasure. To think right thoughts. The God who isn't, the God who you make up in your mind in the moment, the God that you create out of your own little your own little heart, your own little kingdom. That's not the God that can help. That's not the God that can encourage. That's not the God that can strengthen. That's not the God that can show up. That's not the God that you're meant to cast your hope upon. So we see him, right? Who he is is always greater than anything we can make up in our minds. And so seeing God, I mean, just just spending an afternoon saying, I'm just going to study the scriptures. What does this text say about God? I'm not ever even going to go to how it applies to me. Just what do I see of God in this text? You can build up a treasure trove in your heart of him, images, sights, visions, right thoughts about him that you can call on in times like this. From the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. So he's, he's physically separated, right? He, he wants to be with the people of God. He wants to, to come into the place, the the, the, the place of worship and he's saying here now I'm up in the north Mount Hermon and where the Jordan River begins and starts to come down um, we don't know really where Mount or Mount Mazar is I, I think maybe it was on the east side of the Jordan River so you're not only north but you're outside of the Jordan River but either way he is physically displaced from the place he desires to be verse 7 Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. So deep calls to deep is a, it is a diff- difficult sentence to figure out exactly what this means. You, you will hear some that think that this is a, the, 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 the deep eternal longing of my soul crying out to, to the God who is in heaven. There are some who think this is nothing more than just pile of suffering and craziness on top of more and more and more coming I read one guy that says that this is the waters of the deep calling out to the waters above I don't I don't really even know where I, I land here I'm curious if any of you have landed somewhere pretty solid on this particular verse so deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls the the, the, the roar the sound in the beginning right he was he was thirsty he was he was parched he was he was desperate for for god and here he's talking about the 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 roar and the breakers and the waves and they're coming over me and i couldn't help but have my mind immediately go to jonah those of you that have been here on sunday nights right this this desperation to see god because but god's there and it's your breakers and your waves and your waterfalls, and it's, it's just a pounding. You remember this, that as Jonah was, was praying in, uh, in Jonah 2, chapter 2, he's crying out to God, and he's, he's talking about just, there's just more, and I'm going deeper, and I'm going deeper, and I'm going deeper, and now there's seaweed around me, and I've, I've, hit, the bottom, I've hit the bottom of the ocean, and just at the moment where my life was fading, my soul was starting to fade from me, you, you saved me. You, 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 brought, you brought me up. But this man, right, we don't know, these men, we don't, we don't know what the circumstances are, but he knows that the, the darkness and the waves and the breakers and the waterfalls, they're from God. It's your breakers, your waterfall, your waves, all just overcoming me. 
just as with Jonah, who cast the, the wind on the sea, God. Who sent the whale, God. Who was moving all along, it was, it was God. And he knew this. And this isn't, a, and this isn't a discouragement, right? Like you don't see this driving him further away from God. You, you think about Jonah or you think about Job or you think about Joseph. All these men who, who were suffering. And, and Jonah, Jonah's suffering because of his own sin. Job's not suffering because of anybody's sin necessarily. I guess the raiders that came and took his livestock had sinned. But it was a wind that blows over his house and takes his, takes his kid's life. Joseph is suffering because of somebody else. So you see three very different circumstances, right? Jonah caused it. Or Jonah sinned, brought this upon himself. Nobody sinned in Job's case. And Joseph's brother sinned against him. But in all three of these, we see the hand of God is the one that's moving the pieces. The sovereign hand of God that's ordaining all of it. And in none of these do we see the men saying, not fair. You can't do this. It drives me away from you. I'm no longer going to worship you. He goes on. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. And at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. And so this is important, I think, for us to read verse 8 before we get to verse 9. Because verse 9 is where he says, why have you forgotten me? But right before verse 9, he's talking about your steadfast love. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. Is it um, Malachi 3? Somewhere in there. 3, 7 maybe. I'm the Lord and I change not. Right? He speaks to the people and says, this is the reason you're not going to be destroyed. Because of my steadfastness. Because of my unchanging nature. We point to this to speak about, when we're talking about the attributes of God, this is a, a prime text that, Shows us the immutability of God, the unchanging nature of God. But we don't ever see how that could be a good thing. It's a good thing because how do you know when you wake up tomorrow he's not going to hate you? How do you know when you wake up tomorrow you're going to still be saved? It's because God is steadfast and unchanging in his love. And his steadfast love by day and at night his song is with me. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking this means the dude's singing. He's singing in the middle of his sorrow. He's singing the truth about God to himself. He's preaching to, he's having his own little worship service. He's preaching, he's praying, he's singing the truth of God to himself in the middle of the sorrow. You see why I say this is God's, this is God's answer for spiritual depression. It's to press deeper into God. To press deeper, it's not to pull back. That's our first inclination, right? Especially if we know that it's his hand. It's his storm, it's his breakers, it's his waves. The first inclination might be, ouch, that hurt, pull back. You're the one that did it. How many Christians do you know that if that's what God is, if that's what following God looks like, if that's who God really is, and they flinch, and they, and they pull back, and the answer is the exact opposite. I come pressing deeper into him. The bones that you have breaking broken you you will heal you'll you will give me what i need verse nine i say to god so there's a verse in uh jonah and it's in it's in his prayer jonah 2 where he starts off the same he says i say or i said or something like that 
famous Obadiah Jonah. Then I said, this is verse 4 in Jonah 2, Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your temple. I told you when we worked through that text, I thought his saying, then I said, was Jonah's way of saying, but he didn't actually drive me away. Does that make sense? That's what it felt like to me in the moment that God drove me away, but I know God didn't drive me away because I was running from him. He was pursuing me as I ran away from him. And so when I think, think what he says here, I said to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? It's almost like the psalmist is making clear he hadn't forgotten me. I know he hadn't forgotten me because, by the way, his waves, his breakers, his waterfall that were coming over me, his steadfast love that I was just talking about in the verse before, his songs that I was singing to myself in the night. Are you with me? But this means, to me at least, that even someone who's right with God has a thirst and a hunger for God, wants desperately to see the face of God and to be in worship with the people of God, you can very much feel like God's forgotten me. God has cast me out of his presence. It's okay to say that back to God. God, have you, for, have you forgotten me here? I'm dying on the vine. I guess we could go back to Joseph, right? Lingering away in prison. Have you forgotten me? You're just gonna leave me here forever until I die? I haven't done anything. But he feels in that moment that it is God who, is, who has forgotten him. Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? I don't think he's saying, why am I sad about the oppression of the enemy? He's saying, why are you letting this happen is what I think he's saying. It's not, why am I sad? We know why you're sad. People are nana boo booing you while God doesn't seem to be showing up to bring you back into his presence. And by the way, isn't that the kind of prayer God would answer? How many times do you offer a prayer that you're like, God, this is the exact kind of prayer you should answer. I want to see your face and worship in your temple. Why would you not want that, God? Why would that not be to your glory? Why would that not be to my good? You've prayed prayers like that before, right? God, I'm praying with as pure heart as I know, and I'm praying for something that I'm almost certain you gotta want. I see no way this could be more to my good than this other thing that I'm praying for that you're not giving me. I see no way that you're more glorified in this than by not giving me the thing that I'm wanting, and you don't. You keep not doing it. You allow these people to stand here and taunt me. Why? It's okay to ask God why, but when we come to the point of despair, that's not the answer. Verse 10. As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? There it is again. Where is your God? Just like we saw up in verse 3, and he, he compares it to a deadly wound in my, in my bones, and you've, you've, you've experienced that at some point right where God didn't seem to be showing up the suffering continued the enemy was taunting maybe it's not even earthly enemies maybe it's the devil in your head or one of his minions right just just chirping at you chirping at you chirping at you and it feels like death it feels like I'm going to die it feels like there's a there's a an infection that's fixing to take my life and in my bones verse 11 why are you cast down O my soul why are you at turmoil within me hope in God for I shall again praise him, my salvation, and my God. I don't think that when he says, I shall again praise him, he's saying, I guarantee you God's going to bring me back where I want to go. There's no guarantee that God's going to lead you to where you think you're supposed to be or where you desire to go or is as altruistic as your prayer might be. But he's saying, I will praise you again. I will continue to praise you. 43. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people from the deceitful and unjust man 
deliver me. So he's saying, vindicate me, God. Uphold what is right. Deliver me from the hand of deceitful and unjust men. Exodus 14, 14 says, you have only need be silent. The Lord will fight for you. Does this mean that God is going to shut the mouth of every single person out there that drags you through the mud? No. Does it mean that he's going to stop every single one of their arrows? No. But it means you don't need to be the one out there trying to stop them. You don't need to be the one out there vindicating your name. You don't need to be the one out there trying to shut down all the lies that we trust in God. We rest in him. We trust in him. We be silent. We be still. And we wait. Sometimes we will be like King David as he was going up and out of Jerusalem and over the Mount of Olives and the family, or the, the man from the tribe of Saul is throwing rocks at him and cursing him. And you remember David's men said, don't let this dog talk to you like this. I'll chop his head off. And David said, maybe God sent him here to tell me some stuff. Maybe God sent this dude to cur- curse me and I'm going to stop him. Because here's the reality. Anything anybody says about me, any accusation anybody makes about me, I promise I deserve 100 times worse. That, that probably needs to be at least in part our response. Dude, if you only knew half of it, I, you want me to give you some ammo? You're, you're, you're focusing on the wrong thing here. You're saying stuff that's not true. I'll give you some real stuff. Verse 2. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Again, it's, he knows that he's not been re- rejected. So I don't know, is, he, is this just like when he says here, why have you forgotten me? Or is this a God revealed to me if there is some fault, if there is some sin? Is there something I've done that led me here? There always does need to be this introspection, right? There, there, nobody is perfectly sinless and completely without fault. There's plenty of scenarios where Someone in scripture can say, I'm innocent in this, right? I I didn't do the thing that I'm being accused of doing, but there is sin within me, and maybe God's going to use this to reveal something that's within me. I don't don't know for sure if, if if he's wrongly saying God's rejecting him or if he's saying God revealed to me what's led me to this place, what role have I played in this. I'm not for sure, but he recognized at the beginning of that, verse 2, that God is the one in whom he takes refuge. I, I throw myself into you. I, I listened to a, uh, a sermon from Paul Washer several years ago where he was, he was trying to give a, a definition or a word picture of repentance, of, of true repentance. And, and he talks about a man going along a cliff, just a, just a, sh- a straight cliff, and there's barely a ledge there, and you got bad guys coming this way, and bad guys coming this way, and bad guys coming this way, and everybody's shooting arrows, and you just find one little hole in the rock, and you just throw yourself into it. You just dive into it. Now, wild horses aren't going to drag me out, because out there's nothing but death. This is the only place that it's taking refuge, that it's hiding. How many times did we see that in the first 41 Psalms, David talking about that? God being his, his rock and his refuge hiding under his wing. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. So I I don't know if he's saying, lead me back home specifically. That is what he wants. He wants to go back to Jerusalem. He wants to be back with the people depending on when it says Jerusalem may have been sacked and the temple may have been destroyed if this is this is somebody off in exile in Babylon then the temple wasn't there for him to go back to 
I don't know for sure what he's asking. He's asking for physical rescue here, for, for a physical return, or is he just saying, God, let me worship right here in this place? In spirit and in truth, in light and in truth, let me worship you right, right where you have me. I, I don't know, but either way, he's saying, I've got a commitment to worship. I want to continue worshiping, but I need you to do it. I need you to lead me. What, remember, I prayed at the beginning of our, before Carrie led us in, in some hymns, I said, God, we, we need you to direct our hearts and our lips and our minds, or this won't be real worship. This will just be a song service. We'll, we'll just be singing some songs, which is maybe pretty, but it's not, not worship. The Spirit's got to work within us to, to make it real. Verse 4. Then I will go to the altar of God, which makes me think maybe he is talking about going actually to the, to the temple. Maybe not. To God, my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with a lyre, O God, my God. So we've really just come full circle, right? You say, I just want to worship you. I just want to be with you. I, just, I, want to have, I want to have joy within my heart again. Whatever is coming on me, I want this to be lifted. I'll worship you right now in the middle of this. I'll worship you in the pain. I'll worship you in the sorrow. I'll speak truth. As R.D. pointed to, we don't lie about it. We, we deal with reality in front of us. This is hard. This is no fun. I don't like this, but I worship you in it. And it's not I worship you in spite of the pain. It's not I worship you because, hey, you've been so good to me at other times. I'm willing to overlook this. It's that even in the middle of this, I find refuge in you. I find you to be my rock. I find you to be my shelter. I really do find real joy in pressing into you right in the middle of this. And so I'll worship you right in the middle of this, but I do hope for joy. I do hope for lighter days. I do hope for those days when I'm playing the liar and I'm skipping in and I don't always want to be the guy that's here. But again, there's, there's no promise that the external circumstances get any better. And then he finishes, why are you cast down on my soul? Why are you at turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. As I told you when we first, when we looked up in verse 5 with the first instance of that, of that saying, that we see this in the life of Jesus himself, right? He, he's, he's coming to the dinner and he's, his, his, his soul is, is sorrowful and he goes to the garden and his soul is sorrowful and he goes up upon the cross and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there can be this this sense even in the middle of this because of what Christ Jesus suffered because of him taking our place that we too even in the middle of times of suffering even in the middle of times when it feels as though we've been abandoned and forsaken and rejected and cast out we can press in with the hope that I will continue to praise you I will continue to worship you and know you will not abandon me to this place forever even if the way of escape is death and you welcome me into your presence once and for all I know that whatever this thing is, you've not brought it for my destruction. You've brought it for my good. You've not brought it to chase me away. You've brought it to drag me in, drag me in deeper. All right, let's pray. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you that the word was not written by men who cannot relate to us, but men who experience the full gamut of emotions elation, anger, frustration, sorrow, fear, spiritual depression. Father, I pray that you would allow this word to speak to us wherever we are 
and cause us to be a people who worship even when times are hard, even when the enemy taunts. Father, we love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.